Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 18, Andrew Porwancher, John Henry Wigmore, and the Rules of Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Andrew Porwancher. Andrew is Assistant Professor of Classics and Letters at the University of Oklahoma, where he is a core faculty member of the Institute for American Constitutional Heritage. Besides the topic of today's podcast, Andrew is author of The Devil Himself, A Tale of Honor, Insanity, and the Birth of Modern America, as well as a forthcoming book on Alexander Hamilton, entitled The Jewish Founding Father, Alexander Hamilton's Hidden Life. Today's podcast focuses on Andrew's look at the history of evidence law, a new book entitled John Henry Wigmore and the Rules of Evidence, The Hidden Origins of Modern Law which is published by the University of Missouri Press. In the book, Andrew argues that Wigmore was not a legal formalist, as is often assumed or characterized, but rather was one of the key proponents of legal realism. In making his argument, Andrew chronicles Wigmore's life, his intellectual influences and context, and the place of Wigmore's monumental treatise on evidence, a work that needs no introduction. Andrew, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you, Adam. Excited to be here. Before we get into the substance of your book, let me start you with the obvious background question. Your book is a rather extraordinary coalescence, I think, of several things. Your PhD is in history, and you're a member of a classics department, and at least from my brief literature review, You've written perhaps the first biography on Wigmore in almost 40 years. So what got you interested in Wigmore and the rules of evidence? Sure. And I think that does come back to my background as a PhD in history. I'll mention briefly that I actually teach in a constitutional studies program that for a variety of idiosyncratic reasons here at the University of Oklahoma is housed in a classics department. And it has to do with the founding director of the institute being a classical historian and interested in the classical foundations of American constitutional law. So I was hired to teach American legal history. I have a PhD in history. I don't have a JD. And so I became interested in Wigmore and in evidence law for probably the kinds of reasons that a historian rather than maybe a law professor would be interested. I didn't set out to necessarily write a history of evidence law. I wanted to address this fundamental question, what is truth, from a historical perspective and look at how society discriminated between truth and falsehood. And that led me to evidence law because I thought if you look at the history of evidence law and you look at judicial fact-finding in courtrooms, I could use this as an entry point into trying to understand how society writ large establishes credible knowledge. And I was particularly interested in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, because this was a time period where America was undergoing a very rapid transformation from a rural agrarian society to an urban industrial one. And I had never heard of John Henry Wigmore, but quickly discovered 
getting into the topic, that he was the dominant figure, single-handedly modernized the rules of evidence in American law. So he quickly became the focus of my study. So not only was there a rapid change between the agrarian and industrial society at that point, but in the legal world, there was this great change or shift from legal formalism to legal modernism, as you term it, or legal realism. You frame your book as an argument along these lines that Wigmore was not a legal formalist as commonly believed, but rather as a supporter, or if not a leading light of legal realism. Just before we get into that discussion as a review, would you mind taking us into that historical context between formalism and realism and remind us why that matters in the history of American thought? If I could, I'll take a, a moment and talk about it historically and then also in terms of the historical scholarship on that subject. The traditional narrative is that legal formalism reigned supreme in the late 19th, early 20th century, but it collapsed under the weight of its anachronism by the 1930s, and that the initial critique of formalism begins in the late 19th century with proto-legal realists like Oliver Wendell Holmes, and they lay the foundation for the ultimate ascension of legal realism as the school of jurisprudence that displaces formalism. And so that's the typical narrative. And in terms of the substance of what these terms mean, the formalistic view of law is one in which law is treated as an exercise in syllogism and formal logic, where judges are passive arbiters of justice who are dispassionately discovering and applying legal principles to the facts at hand. Law is seen as something that is natural and immutable. Law is, in a tacit way, sort of seen as having its own volition, and there's not necessarily a premium on situating it in a social context. And legal realism is sort of the exact opposite of this. It recognizes that judges are fallible, that judges exercise discretion, but thinks that that's not necessarily a bad thing, that judges should exercise discretion, that the idea that the law can be treated as a formalistic syllogism is a fantasy and that the law is messy, it's murky, it's idiosyncratic, that we can't traffic in universal principles and certainties, that we need to come to grips with the nuances and the contradictions of law. And legal realists also rejected this idea that law is natural. They looked at law as socially constructed, and they emphasized situating law in its social context. And the one thing I'll add to that is that a lot of historians or you know, legal historians have pushed back on that and said, maybe formalism never really existed. That actually, a lot of the people we think of as traditional formalists, if you get into the primary sources and what they actually were saying, sounds a lot like realism, because these things are just patently obvious, true things about law to say that judges exercise discretion sometimes. The law can't just be a pure exercise in syllogistic logic. And so there was a great book that came out by Brian Tamanaha called Beyond the Formalist-Realist Divide, where he argues, I think very persuasively, that formalism was largely a myth created by progressives to caricature and discredit their conservative opponents. And there's another book that came out by David Raban from UT Austin called Law's History, about the history of legal historians. And his research dovetails with a lot of what Tamanaha is arguing. And my book fits in that vein because Wigmore is someone who had been derided as a consummate formalist. And the fact that when you get into the content of his evidence treatise, and it is so thoroughly realist and was recognized by 
contemporaries as realist. Recovering Wigmore's realism when he was derided as a formalist, I think, lends further credence to this idea that formalism never really existed in the form that contemporaries liked to claim that it did. Why is it important that we view Wigmore as a realist? How does it change his legacy? I mean, I understand that you're in many ways setting the record straight, that perhaps formalism doesn't really exist. And this label on Wigmore was only so that he could be attacked by a new generation. I think your book makes a really interesting point about how in the academy, oftentimes we have to attack those who have gone before in order to make a name for ourselves. And Wigmore thought that it was too bad that that was that way. But why is it important that we characterize him as a realist? That's a good question. I'll say historians would probably be like, oh, you set the record straight. That's all I need to know. That's cause enough. But I think it's a totally fair question. I think it's important because to me, it doesn't really make sense that he would be a formalist, but could have a treatise that completely dominates in an era of realism and beyond. And before I got into the text of the treatise, I read the historical scholarship on Wigmore, and I thought this is so curious. He is this totally dominant figure in evidence law, and yet he champions, supposedly, this formalistic philosophy of law that is totally at odds with modernizing realist trends. And the treatise continues to endure through most of the 20th century, and its spirit lives on, I think, in a lot of the federal rules of evidence. And so what I thought this book would originally try to do is answer the question of how someone who subscribed to a philosophy that was becoming increasingly anachronistic, managed to become a dominant figure in a field of law. What was it that made evidence law so different from every other branch of law? So that was the question I originally sought to answer. And what I discovered is that the premise was entirely wrong, that actually Wigmore was a consummate realist and his treatise was a consummate expression of his thorough realism. And so to me, I think it helps solve this puzzle And it makes sense that someone who had this modernist realist philosophy would come to dominate this branch of law. And in terms of why is it important, one way of thinking about this is pushing back on people today who might argue for a golden age of realism and see that as a positive thing or something to adhere to and see realism as having opened Pandora's box of doubts and uncertainties. And I think if we can recover Wigmore and other figures who are seen as consummate formalists and show that they're actually realists, I think it may pull the rug out from people who want to believe that there was a golden age of formalism and see that as something that we need to get back to, when really I don't think it ever existed quite in those terms at all. Let me turn back to your point about the treatise and how influential it was. Can you give us a sense of the context in which Wigmore's magnum opus was published. So there were many other evidence treatises before him, Thayer's, for example, but no one talks about Thayer's treatise. Wigmore's was different and in many ways far more memorable than those that came before or after. What was special about that treatise? For the 70 years or so preceding the publication of Wigmore's treatise, the first three volumes of Wigmore's treatise, I'll just mention, came out in 1904. The fourth and final volume of that first edition came out in 1905. But for the 70 years preceding that, Greenleaf on evidence was the dominant evidence treatise. And Greenleaf had gone through several different iterations, I think 15 or 16 editions. 
it was mainly adding case law. And America changes a lot between the 1840s when Greenleaf's work is first published and the publication of Wigmore's work. And so Greenleaf's evidence treatise grows increasingly out of touch with modern needs. And James Bradley Thayer, who was Wigmore's mentor and something of a father figure to Wigmore, teaches evidence law at Harvard. He's interested in evidence law. And he sees that something needs to be done to modernize the field of evidence and to recalibrate it to the new urban industrial realities of a modernizing America. And so he sets out on a two-part project. The first part is to have a treatise that's called the Preliminary Treatise, which was on the history of evidence law. And that was going to set the stage for a practitioner's treatise that could actually be used in courtrooms. But Thayer passes away after the publication of the preliminary treatise before he can publish his magnum opus on evidence law. And I've actually seen his jumble of handwritten notes or in the archives at Harvard Law. And it's clear that he was hard at work and had done a tremendous amount of research to that end. But Wigmore ends up publishing magnum opus that Thayer dies before he's able to. And Wigmore, his treatise was so influential for a couple reasons, partly because it was so exhaustive. The treatise is four volumes, 4,000 pages. It cites 40,000 cases, not just in the U.S., but in other common law countries as well. And he covers every possible evidence topic under the sun and does it with a rigor and a thoroughness that exceeds what any evidence scholar had done before or any treatise writer on any subject of law had done before in America. So I think its exhaustiveness is part of why it was so successful. But the other part, and this really gets to the heart of my book about him, is that he subjected the rules of evidence to the principles of legal realism at a time when the American legal profession was modernizing and was ready for realism in law, was ready for realism in evidence law and in other branches of law. And so I think it's those two elements the thoroughness of it, and the use of realism's principles to organize and make sense and reform the law that help explain why it exercised such hegemony over the practice of evidence law in Wigmore's lifetime and beyond. Your book talks a lot about Wigmore's preference for judicial discretion, and this dovetails with your discussion about him being a realist. The judicial discretion point manifests itself in evidentiary rules like the precursor to Rule 403. Why the preference by Wigmore for discretion as opposed to clear rules? Was it that he inherently trusted judges? Was this trust an idealistic move? I think he did trust judges. That's not to say that he didn't recognize the fallibility of judges. Another one of Wigmore's mentors, Holmes, said famously, right, what matters is not the robe, but the man underneath. And that's a sentiment that Wigmore would have certainly agreed with. And if you look in his treatise, here's someone who clearly sees judges as prone to error and liable to make mistakes. But he thought the greater danger was in having hard and fast rules that would straitjacket judges from being able to exercise discretion and accommodate unforeseen contingencies on a case-by-case -case basis. So I don't think it's that he was blindly deferential to judges 
But I think he saw the greater evil as not affording judges the necessary leeway to be able to make informed decisions about what to admit or reject as evidence based on circumstances that no set of guidelines, no matter how detailed, could possibly foresee every possible instance that might come up. And the one caveat I'll add to that is that when it came to judicial discretion and judicial invalidation of legislation, Wigmore took the opposite view. He believed that judges should be hesitant to exercise judicial discretion. And a year before Holmes chastised as a majority on the Lochner court for striking down the Bake Shop Act infamously, Wigmore actually articulates that very same argument that we see in Holmes's Lochner dissent that appears in Wigmore's evidence treatise. And in fact, I think they both get it from James Bradley Thayer, who predates both of them by making that argument in his famous 1894 Law Review article. So I'll say, while Wigmore did believe in judicial discretion, when it came to substantive law, he favored more judicial abstention. Let me ask another specific about Wigmore. One fact that I think is often forgotten about Wigmore that you discuss in the book is that he taught in Japan for a number of years before returning to the United States, and that apart from evidence, most of his other legal scholarship was in comparative work. How did that experience, to your mind, affect his work in the evidence field? It hugely affected it. So Wigmore is 26 years old. He's a couple years out of Harvard Law School. He's been doing some legal research for some lawyers around Boston, including a young Louis Brandeis who hires him. He's a very academic guy. He wants to go into legal academia. And not unlike today, it's a tight job market for academics. And he doesn't find a job in the U.S., but the Harvard president recommends him for a job teaching at Keio University in Tokyo. Japan is in the midst of the Meiji era in which Japan is coming out of its centuries of isolation and is trying to westernize as quickly as possible, westernize in all different aspects, in industry and technology and in law. And so Wigmore is hired to teach Anglo-American law at Keio University. What's interesting is that although Wigmore is this consummate example of Meiji-era westernization, he's this American brought in to teach Western law, and he's even playing shortstop on Tokyo's first baseball team. What really interests Wigmore is the local Japanese law, and he becomes fluent in Japanese. He was a total genius with languages. He was fluent in about a dozen languages as disparate as Arabic and Russian, and he becomes fluent in Japanese, delves into all of these Japanese legal records that no one else has really paid attention to. And he sees in Japanese law an emphasis on particularity, a rejection of universal rules, support for judicial discretion, a belief that the judiciary needs to engage in balancing tasks. All of these elements of legal realism that dovetail with the sorts of things he was learning from James Bradley Thayer, they dovetail with the sorts of judicial decisions that Oliver Wendell Holmes is coming out with as a justice on the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And so Wigmore is taking these lessons from Japanese law. His hope was actually to be a scholar of comparative law back in the United States. But the president of Harvard tells Wigmore, that's not a field. Comparative law doesn't, that's not a thing that doesn't exist. Wigmore is really the first major comparative law scholar, but he is able to get a job teaching evidence among some other subjects like torts and Northwestern law, and evidence becomes the center of gravity of his world. 
but he never forgot those lessons he learned from his two and a half years in Japan. And we can see a lot of parallels between the jurisprudential values that he spots in Japanese law, and he ultimately translates into American evidence doctrine. So interesting that Wigmore ends up being a billboard for doing comparative work, and certainly I would have never expected it. A final question for you. In the book, you emphasize that Wigmore's realism was infused with pragmatism, that experience was the guide as opposed to logic or elegance. But at the same time, Wigmore didn't really buy into Cardozo's brand of sociological jurisprudence, this use of social science to inform law. Much of the work today in evidence reform is based on this sociological jurisprudence, using social science and psychology and economics to figure out whether or not the assumptions that we're making in the evidentiary rules are right. What do you think Wigmore would make of all of this? Would he approve of what the academy is doing, or would he object to it? That's a really interesting question. Wigmore was someone who thought a lot about sociological jurisprudence and didn't think it was viable. It wasn't that, you know, he had failed to anticipate this kind of exercise. And there were certainly a lot of people that Wigmore was close to, like Cardozo and Roscoe Pound, who was a protege of Wigmore's, who were really the fathers of sociological jurisprudence. Wigmore's concern is that if you don't have consensus within a social science field, then it's not yet ripe for putting that into legal practice. And so I think if he saw an area of social scientific research where there was disagreement among the social scientists, I think he would be very hesitant to say, yes, this field has reached a level of maturity that legal practitioners can safely make use of it. But if there's areas where social scientists do find relative consensus, I have no doubt that Wigmore would be totally supportive of making use of that. A lot of the people for the last hundred years who have been wary of sociological jurisprudence have been wary of it perhaps for their own psychological reasons because they're anxious about ceding too much of the preserve of lawyers to people outside the legal profession, to people outside the discipline of law, and perhaps giving away some of their autonomy. And Wigmore wasn't plagued by those kinds of anxieties. He was just hesitant to take any finding in any subject about which there was disagreement and implement that into law until such time as people could find consensus. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights on Wigmore and his place in the development of evidence law. I think it's been a great addition to this season of the podcast. As a final note, and let me note this for our audience and perhaps you'll want to make a brief pitch for it. I wanted to mention that you have another new book out, which is called The Devil Himself, and it's published by Oxford University Press. The Devil Himself chronicles a sensational trial in late 19th century Pennsylvania and tackles some novel evidentiary issues at the time, and I found it a very enjoyable read. Thank you. No, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and this is a book where I think for evidence scholars and listeners that you have would be interested in it because the book addresses a lot of novel issues in the 1880s about the admission of expert testimony related to the temporary insanity defense, which was 
relatively new at the time. And more broadly, it's sort of a story about illicit love and honor and a duel and political intrigue. So I've tried to write a book that is academic, but also might appeal to your mother-in-law or father-in-law. I hope that academics like it. I hope to reach a broader audience as well. Thank you for the plug and thanks for having me onto the podcast. It's been really fun. It's been quite some time since someone published a biography of Wigmore. Andrew's new book is part biography and part intellectual history. It provides the reader with a deep insight into the major players of the time, the rise of legal realism, and Wigmore and his treatise's role throughout the period. Notably, at his core, Wigmore was a legal realist, and efforts to paint him as a formalist were largely by way of contrast rather than a true reflection of Wigmore's views. According to Andrew, it was this realist perspective that explains the unparalleled influence of his treatise. I am also struck by how influential Wigmore's experiences in Japan and with traditional Japanese law were to his thinking. Wigmore was brought to Japan with the intention of westernizing Japanese law, but in the end, his experience perhaps ultimately helped to easternize American evidence law in the process. This sort of cross-fertilization is, of course, one of the great strengths of comparative work. In closing, I want to go back to the discussion point about Wigmore's attitude toward discovery and his place in the academy. For this, I will quote from the final page of Andrew's book. Wigmore was different from both Pound and Llewellyn. His desire to claim some real estate on crowded jurisprudential turf did not translate into an Oedipal tendency to tear down his father's generation. Wigmore was more interested in influencing legal practitioners who yearned for stability in law than he was in impressing fellow academics who valued unorthodoxy in ideas. Whereas Pound and Llewellyn were too eager to highlight their own originality, Wigmore actually downplayed the newness of his thought. In so doing, Wigmore rendered his suggestions for reform palatable to the less progressive elements of the bench and bar. I think this perspective from the indisputed giant of our field is one worth pondering. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandsetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.